Howdy, everybody, and welcome to another BP Movie Journal, the show we do where we talk about the stuff we've seen since the last time we did one of these. I'm David. I'm Tyler. Uh, let's uh, let's get started. What, uh, what have you been watching? All right. So I saw Antoine Fuqua's The Magnificent Seven, which is a film that you saw. I did see that, yeah. Uh, I think you like it more than I did, and but I think I like it more than anybody else, than most people did, <laughs> uh, not getting a lot of good reviews. Um I think what I responded to, uh, first off, you are dead on. Boy, that's a violent PG-13. <laughs> yeah. Good God. You know, I mean, I recognize that, yeah, we don't see a lot of blood spurting out or anything like that. It's not a Tarantino movie. But we are seeing a lot, I mean a lot of violence. Yeah. Um, and And I would say an almost... An almost bad boys two level of violence where it is just, I mean, like just cutting through yeah, but, theoretical people but uh, like butter. Yeah, it's different because we are, uh, yeah, the movie doesn't dwell on on these people dying, but it also doesn't ignore the fact that these people are dying. They're people that we, in the abstract, care about or we care about their plight because they represent the town, mm-hmm. right? So, uh when they're being killed, I'm assuming you're talking about the townspeople. I'm talking about everybody. Cause there's also like, you know, a couple hundred like mercenaries or whatever they're supposed to be yeah. who get killed, but they're, I guess, uh, they might as well they made their bed. <laughs> they might as well. Uh, I'll, I'll never, I'll never forget, uh, reading, uh, some old comic books of the tick and that in the world of the tick ninjas are basically cockroaches. Uh-huh. They're just everywhere. <laughs> like at one point a guy hits one with his car and it's like, Oh, it's just a ninja. Uh, and ever since then I, I look at this type of yeah. thing as these guys might as well be ninjas. Uh-huh. Um, and so, uh, but there is, for some reason there's just something about that. Um, like even in something like a history of violence, one of the reasons that I love it so much is because it treats even the the thugs, the hired goons, mm-hmm. as people. Insofar you know, as much as we can, we can allow them. But uh, I don't know. It's just a yeah. I, I, I get what you're saying because I'm generally opposed to that sort of thing. But it didn't bother me as much here because the movie is at least in a glancing superficial way is at least saying um that these are the stakes and these people yeah chose to be here um yeah. or they're fighting for something like it's it's not the i guess i, I just bristled you comparing it to bad boys too because the thing with bad boys too is that they're plowing through this sure like um shanty village and they must be killing people, but the right. movie doesn't even bother to acknowledge yeah. whether or not they are. Here, we know these people will be dying. Or we know these people are dying. We know what they're dying for. I think I would I would have responded to it more if I mean we're not introduced to a lot of townspeople. Here's the thing: by casting a notable actor in the first scene and having yeah. him get shot, is he? Let's ask you. Let, let me let me ask you this: to you and me, as like people who watch a lot of movies and know who that is. Mm-hmm. Cause I don't want to spoil it for people for people. Cause I didn't know. Um, it's like, Oh, smart move. They cast a name actor in this, in this small role. Yeah. But I wonder if the average viewer even it's knows like, who that is. It's like, what is his name? Ben Chaplin from uh, uh, legend of Tarzan. Oh yeah. Yeah. Like what is he doing? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. And so I, I think it could be a situation where the average viewer 
wouldn't know this person's name. Okay. And I don't think we've said his name and I, no. and I, but they might say like, Oh, I recognize that guy. Yeah. And because then, I, you, know, you know, we were talking about, um, <sighs> on an episode that hasn't posted, I feel like we've been saying that a lot. Well, um, we've been doing that a lot. Um, yeah. On an episode that hasn't posted yet, we were talking about, um, I don't think it's posted. Uh, we were talking about the, um, no, we weren't, uh, the, uh, Taylor Swift, Tom Hiddleston, like brief romance, but then yes. the fact that like a lot of Taylor Swift fans had no idea who Tom Hiddleston was. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then our, um, uh, our friend and editor at large, Scott and I, uh, drew my attention to articles basically at when Brangelina and the Brangelina breakup and the rumors that it was because Brad Pitt was having an affair with Marion Cotillard because he just made mm. a, a, a movie with her. Um, there are a lot of these articles like who is, who is Marion Cotillard? And it's like, she's an Oscar winning actress at well, the very least. That doesn't mean anything, I but know. she is like one of the main characters in the dark Knight rises, which yeah. is one of the, like, it's like the 11th highest grossing movie of all time or something. Yeah. Um, it, yeah, that's what I'm saying is, uh, I mean, you'll hear more of this conversation when that episode does go up. Cause we sure. talk about it at length. Like the, being a famous movie star doesn't mean as much to as many people as it used to. I guess that's true. Um, so anyway, this actor in Magnificent Seven, you and I like immediately are going to go like, yeah, like, oh hey, yeah. Uh, I genuinely thought he was going to be around longer, and when he wasn't, I remember thinking like, oh, just by just by virtue of casting somebody, yeah. that I know of, I, I have an attachment to this person's death, and I do think that maybe that's. That might be the point in so far as the audience might not know his name, but they might recognize him mm-hmm. just as someone they have seen around. Whereas so many of the other townspeople are not that. Um, but that's the thing. The townspeople we are uh, introduced to later on in the film, like there's a young guy who um, Luke something or other who goes, who helps, re- you know, recruit the, the seven. Oh yeah. Yeah. And there comes a moment when I believe he is shot but he's not killed. Oh, right, and even yeah. though I don't have much emotional attachment to him, I'll say that if, if he were killed, it's like, okay, yes, the townspeople are, are in danger and, and the, and nobody is safe, you know? Um, so it's stuff like that. Yeah, that's, that's true. I did. I actually did remember, remember having that thought at one point during the battle thinking like, I wish they would kill off someone we cared about because yeah. I think, and I think if you go back to the last movie journal and I was talking about, um, the sort of thing that, uh, Joss Whedon is good at in these scenes. Um, if you go, I know you haven't seen, uh, Buffy and angel, but like in the Buffy final episode, it's, it, it's mm-hmm. like, this is a huge battle and there's a major character who gets killed like halfway through the battle. And it's not particularly, it's not a big drawn out, like yeah. death, like the people who die in like, you know, in this movie, when the, the characters do die, it's a, yeah. it's always a big thing. There's a moment in the Buffy finale where it's like, it's just a shot. You see a person get killed and you're like, Oh shit. Yeah. Uh, and that resonates. And I did remember thinking like this battle, as much as I'm liking this movie, this battle could use a moment like that. Like if, yeah, if, if like there are Johnny couple- from, uh, Johnny from Deadwood, <laughs> who's in yeah, the movie, yeah. Yeah. uh, Sean Burns, is that Bridger- his name? Uh, Bridges, Bridgers. Brid- yeah. Sean Bridges. Okay. Uh, from was, room as he well. He was in room last year. Um, if he, if we saw him get like, uh, yeah. an, an arrow through the throat or whatever yeah. and he, and he dies, it would like, it would show you the stakes. There is a, there is a town reverend who is actually given a couple of moments. Yeah. Uh, as sort of the, the, the guy who, 
the purveyor of hope in that town. And if he were to die, yeah. that would mean something. That would, well. but I, I think the screenplay needs him to survive. I think so too. Yes. Um, he needs to be there at the end. Um, um I want to. I, I want to listen to the more than one lesson about Magnificent Seven whenever this happens, because um, the movie does both start and end in a church in the same yeah. church, and does see. I, I compared it to uh, the Old Testament when I talked about it last week, and sure. it's in its idea of morality and like and wrath and vengeance. Uh, I would really like to hear you grapple with the Nick Pizzolatto-ness of the, uh, <laughs> of the screenplay. Well, I'll just say, I think, you know, I think they said like, okay, we're not sure how to write this villain character or this mountain man character. Who should we bring in? <laughs> um, and, uh, and yeah, so, and that's the thing is there's, there, there's, there's a lot of good in this movie. There's a lot of, I'll say this. And I, we were talking about this last week is that, there are the name actors, mm-hmm. the people that you recognize. You're, you know, Denzel Washington, Ethan Hawke, uh, Chris, Chris Pratt, and Vincent D'Onofrio. Like, of the seven, those are the four that, you know, people yeah. might not know Vincent D'Onofrio, but they definitely know it's like, oh, that's Kingpin or whatever yeah. it is. And a lot of cinephiles actually probably do know Byung Hung Lee. I don't, I, I never saw I Saw the Devil, which was a big. Yeah, uh, that's movie. true. That, so I think that. Um, a lot of other people who are listening to this probably already knew who he was, but I didn't. Yeah. But it would have been very easy for the other three characters, and maybe by honestly casting non, you know, lesser known actors, but non white actors, that might honestly just help them to that might, to set them apart a little bit. But I thought, um, and I I've forgotten his name already. Um, young Hun Lee. Yeah, I thought he was great. The the young guy who played the Native American, I thought was really good. Martin Sensmeyer is his name. Yeah, and just like you know, I do think that. Um, the the uh, Latino character, the the Mexican, I feel like I feel like he kind of gets lost in the midst of the action. Um, yeah, uh, yeah, which is a bummer. It, it does seem like they're they're setting up. It's like my basic understanding of screenwriting character types is like okay, they're setting up this uh, um, uh, rivalry between him and Chris Pratt. Yeah, and the final scene has got to have. The, the final battle has got to have one of them sacrificing themselves for the other. Yeah. And then it doesn't. It essentially puts Denzel in the role. Like at one point Denzel has to cover yeah. Chris Pratt. I want to give away the, the scene when he's like, cover yeah. me. And it's like, it's like, no, weren't, weren't you paying attention to the movie you were writing? <laughs> exactly. It should have been the Mexican guy at this yeah. point. Like after all their bickering, yeah. this should have been them like coming together. So I will say that anytime there is a death, of one of the seven, I think it's handled remarkably well. Specifically, there is a character who gets a bunch of arrows shot into him, uh-huh. and his facial expression at the moment of passing, yeah, is great. Yeah, I remember, like yeah, it I, was I really powerful uh, because it, there's just this. It's it's like a moment of of peace uh, and 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 a moment of letting go for the character. Yeah. It's a that was. There's some really interesting uh, acting choices on the part of pretty much everybody. Um, yeah, I agree. Chris Pratt may be a little bit miscast, but I th- he did fine. Uh, yeah, I would agree with that too. I don't. Yeah, I don't really disagree with you on any of this okay. stuff. Um, but yeah. it was a, it was it was a it was a, a fun experience for the most part. It's uh, it does. I'll say this though, as a as a fan of the original and of course that iconic music, um, mm-hmm. for them to bring that music in. 
Now, admittedly, I have an association with it, uh-huh. but to bring that music in at the end of a bloody, bloody, sorry, a, an extremely violent movie yeah. and just like, eh. it's, it's a very like morose <laughs> yeah. ending. Yeah. And then you've got, <laughs> da, 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 da. yeah, it's like, uh, I'm ripping off or, uh, you know, I'm going to be having to, uh, give props to the guy. I'm always giving props to Tom Sharpling from the best show, but he was talking about watching the West wing on DVD. Oh Yeah. Cause, yeah. cause like the, it ends with like, he, like his, his, his example was like the season one finale, which is yeah. like a, you know, an assassination attempt in the last words, like who's been shot, who's been shot. Yeah. just like, yeah, you don't have the commercial break. Exactly. Um, yeah. it's like, ah, snuffy Walden, read the room, man. Um, all right, we should move on. We talked about this movie for a dozen minutes now. Indeed. Five more minutes than there are. <laughs> characters in the movie um right wow. yeah sure all right uh but we'll we'll keep it in the western realm but we'll move it to more or less the modern day i saw hell or high water oh okay it's fantastic yeah it's, it's one of the it? best movies of the year it's yeah. it's really really great um uh it's i mean i i think we've talked at length um, on this podcast and just as cinephiles in general, people who think, uh, and analyze movies, we talked about whether a movie can be, um, can have violence in it and be against violence. You know, it's hard to, it's a, it's a very difficult thing to do. Yeah. And I think Hell or High Water recognizes that it, among a lot of other things is very difficult and it walks yeah. the line. It doesn't, I don't think Hell or High Water is necessarily an, anti-violent movie right it's it's ambivalent about that just like it's ambivalent about a whole lot of like pretty much everything in the movie it's it shows some ambivalence about uh and i find that so fascinating that it never uh on on most of the issues that it takes up uh it does not really make it easy for you to root for or against the characters. Yeah. Like, except for the bank. It's pretty easy to root against sure. the bank in the movie. That's clearly the main villain of the sure. movie. Um, but what, what the, what that does is it makes Jeff Bridges as the ostensible hero and Chris, uh, Chris Pine and, um, uh, ben, uh Foster. ben Foster as the ostensible villains or anti-heroes or whatever. Um, it throws them in a, back together and then the, yeah. you're like well i you know they're neither one of them is really the good guy or the bad guy here um, in that way it reminds me of the fugitive where it's like well i want richard kimball to accomplish his goal but i also want tommy lee jones to accomplish his goal yeah. oh wait a second yeah they're exactly. completely yeah. at odds yeah and i like that the movie with chris pine's character i think sets up a certain sort of archetype as the guy like the guy the the you know the guy who's doing this for the right reason who's a noble criminal yeah. but it introduces enough things where uh you realize yeah he is probably still that but um he made some choices and said okay to some things yeah uh that are harder to justify from that point of view you know that that might have crossed the line or whatever code you could uh have applied to him uh it's it's a fantastic movie and just i mean we're talking i'm talking here about it's um uh moralizing or it's resistant to moralizing but it's pontificating just in terms of construction and plot it's a fantastic movie it it it, it flies by there's not a scene in the movie that's yeah. that's wasted even when it is just a scene of people talking uh you know there's the uh, jeff bridges and gil uh birmingham are great together marvelous um 
they have uh, a scene the in, bummer, a, in a hotel room that's uh, a fantastic scene. The bummer uh, about here's the here's what's unfortunate about the amount of praise that Ben Foster, Jeff Bridges, and Chris Pine are getting is that Gil Birmingham <laughs> is not getting yeah. enough praise. He is yeah. marvelous. Yeah, yeah, and he yeah he has some he is fantastic. He also has some tricky stuff to do because I mentioned the banks. He sort of has. He has the movie's mission statement, like as, as dialogue yeah. on point. And he he knocks it out of the park. I think. Did you see Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt? Uh, only the first season. I haven't watched the second season. Uh, neither have I. Okay. But he plays yes. uh, uh, Jane Krakowski's father. Yeah. And there come where and he's Native American, and yeah. so there comes a moment when he talks about he talks about uh, like the Iron Bird, but referencing an airplane. He goes, "I'm kidding. I know what airplanes are. I was <laughs> yeah. in the Air Force." <laughs> <laughs> and just does it with that straight face. Like yeah. he's a remarkably strong comedic actor, but, um, and as far as, as far yeah, as the, yeah, his whole like introductory scene where Jeff Bridges accuses him of like dressing like him. And he's yeah. like, just essentially just explaining the dress code. Like <laughs> yeah. we're going to overlap some days. It's a very, very dryly funny scene. Yeah. It's, and in regards to the violence, you know, given what we were just talking about, which is the idea of important characters dying, in a very matter of fact way Mm -hmm. there, there comes, you know, there are some scenes where characters die and it's a very big deal. There are other characters where uh, other scenes where important characters die like Mm -hmm. that. And it's literally characters we've gotten to know throughout the whole film and they are literally blinked out of existence. And it's that concept is really disturbing, you know, because there's no slow motion. There's no music that sets it up. It's just over in a flash. Yeah. And that's really, Ugh. I was thinking about that not just in regards to this movie, but um, in our sophistication as film viewers. I think there was a time, um, maybe up until like the in, even into like the nineteen eighties um, or through the nineteen eighties, where a violent moment. Um, you know what I was thinking about? It was because I was in traffic and I was behind. Uh, I wasn't in the movie traffic. Uh, our friend Mike Siegel was in the movie traffic. Right, right. I was just in tra- stuck in traffic, and I was behind a truck that had some uh, um, like brass like piping on, mm-hmm. it. and it reminded me of the beginning of the descent. Do you remember the beginning of oh, the sure. descent? Yeah, and that's how the there's a auto accident and those pieces go flying. Yeah. Oh, it's the, um, if I were in that situation, uh-huh. if I were in that car with you, it's the first place my mind would go is like, yeah. Oh yeah. So there's an auto accident. Some people get, uh, impaled by these, mm-hmm. by these things. And, um, Neil, uh, who's the director? Marshall. Neil Marshall. Um, it's really quick when it happens. Yeah. And I think, um, there's a time up until, like I was saying, this is get back to my original point where, that was less of an aesthetic choice to do slow motion and more just like that's you would have to because yeah. viewers ne- weren't necessarily sophisticated enough. You kind of had to in quick moments of violence, you had to slow things down to make sure the viewer understood yeah. it. And now you don't have to do that anymore because yeah. we're used to seeing things cut, uh, very quickly. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's, I think it's, um, it's a good thing for all of us that we're more sophisticated viewers cause we get, uh, things like hell or high water we can move on but i uh, yeah i do think the movie is is terrific i also think um because i saw it with my wife and one thing that she and i always talk about after we see a movie together is the bechdel test um and 
the idea of whether or not a movie pass, you know, passes the Bechdel test, but mm-hmm. when they talk about, you know, more than that, because this is Hell or High Water is a great movie. Like I said, it's one of the best movies I've seen this year. Yeah. Um, it, it fails the Bechdel test spectacularly. Yeah. But on the other hand, I do think that there's, uh, a n- noted effort. Like, like you, you mentioned Chris Pine, Ben Foster, Jeff Bridges, Gil Birmingham. Those are your main four characters, all men, but Almost every other, with the exception of Kevin Rankin, almost every other major character they spend any amount of time with is a woman. And all of those women are, are very well, well drawn and well acted. You've got great actor, actresses like Dale Dickey and Katie Mixon yeah. uh, in there and a couple others, um, including the waitress at the, at the steakhouse. It's a, this, it's a fantastic one. This scene. is a great movie for the Bruce McGill Award. Oh, yeah. When we do, uh, our, when we do the BPs, for people who maybe don't know um, or are relatively uh, new listeners, we have a category called the Bruce McGill Award, I the think. The Bruce McGill and the Insider Award for Best Performance Under 15 Minutes. Yeah, so we, we, yeah, we give an award for Best Performance that uh, has fewer than 15 minutes of screen time. And yeah, there are, a, there are so many yeah, in how this do you movie. Even, yeah. Um, yeah, and the movie starts with Dale Dickey. Before anyone yeah. else, you got Dale Dickey, which you know you're in good hands because yeah. she's fantastic. Um, and then Katie Mixon has two scenes that where, which she burns up the screen and it's is amazing. Uh, I, I love her and everything. Um, uh, the, I don't remember the name, but who plays the waitress? Uh, I don't know. You, mean, she, wait, you mean the waitress, which waitress are you talking about? The, the one that is, uh, that is kind of flirting with Chris Pine. That's Katie Mix. That's okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There's the other waitress who they describe as a, a rattlesnake. <laughs> yeah. She's fantastic. She was delightful as well. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, uh, yeah, that's Katie Mixon. Um, people know her. Um, if they know her, they know her probably from Eastbound and Down. Um, mm. uh, anyway, uh, and yes. also, um, speaking of actresses you might only know if you watch uh, a lot of TV, Chris Pine's ex-wife is played by Marin Ireland, who um, had a small but very memorable uh, recurring character in the first couple seasons of Homeland. Oh, okay. Where she was a... Uh, Looking like she does, she was a terrorist. She was a radicalized Indeed. Um, American, you know, blonde woman. Um, let me ask you this, uh, for the purposes of the BPs. Ben Foster, leader supporting. Huh. Um, I would say supporting, yeah. I think if there's a lead here, I guess it's Chris Pine. Yeah, it's Chris Pine. I feel like both of them might be lead. Like I recognize that the Oscars and and various other things are going to consider Ben Foster uh, supporting, but if you if you look at like where he is at the beginning and where he is at the end, I do think that there there's a bit of an arc to him. That's true, um, but I uh, yeah I would still put him as a supporting okay. character. It's good All to right. know. All right, I mean he kind of literally is. He's kind of part of his arc is that he's um, essentially given up himself to his brother's quest. Yeah. He's, He's thrown his lot in with his brother and it's like, I'm doing this right. because, you know, to help you achieve your goal. So he is almost literally a supporting character. But All one right. could say that in the execution of that quest, he becomes a lead. Yes, I, so I, I could definitely see very, that. Very but, complex. Uh, I'm going to stick with him being supporting. we got to okay. move on. We spend way too much time on this. All right. So next for me is the Brian De Palma film Raising Cain. Oh, cool. Which is my first it. time seeing it. Um, so I took an Alfred Hitchcock class this last, uh, th- this summer. And, um, one thing that we read about was Brian De Palma and his 
very overt love of Alfred Hitchcock. And mm-hmm. we watched a movie called Body Double, which incorporates a lot of vertigo and a lot of rear window. Uh, Raising Cain definitely has a lot of psycho right down to a character who puts a body in a car and sinks a body in a swamp. Oh. And as the car is sinking, it stops for a moment. Uh, wow. That's yeah. <laughs> really specific. Yeah. They use homage. It's, it's all there. Uh, so my, it's very interesting because there's, because you have John Lithgow in like a, in, in multiple roles and, you know, the nature of the film is, is over the top and campy and all that. And that's John Lithgow, uh, you know, through and through. Um, Greg Henry's in the film. Always nice to see him. Yeah. So, but that's the thing is as a thriller, it's not that, it's not that remarkably interesting. It's interesting as camp and it's interesting as homage. My question to you, David, having not seen the film, but camp and homage, is that enough to qualify it as a good movie? Uh, yeah, I'm not, I'm not the MPA over here. I don't have a checklist of (laughs) what qualifies. I'd have to see it in context. It's all about context, but, uh, yes. Okay. I would say yes. Cause I just, I have such a hard time, um, separating things out because there are movies that will incorporate, you know, homage, you know, if you were to watch what lies beneath, you know, which is that's Hitchcock all over the place as Mm -hmm. well. And if you're a fan of Hitchcock, then you watch that movie and you're like, oh boy, this is fun. Uh, I know what he's doing. And you're almost engaging more with that than the story that the filmmaker is ostensibly telling. But at the same time, the filmmaker wants you to be engaging with that. And so my question then becomes, what is the, what is the primary, uh, goal of the filmmaker when they're doing this directive and homage. And, uh, you know, this is a Blu-ray that I need to review. I meant to review it a few days ago. I don't know where to start (laughs) and I don't want my review to be 1500 words uh, as I just parse this out. But it's, it's an interesting movie. Um, I don't think it's, as I said, I don't, I don't think it's that remarkably thrilling, but it is nonetheless interesting. Uh, it's no body double body double is a much better movie from a story standpoint and from an homage standpoint, but raising Kane is nonetheless interesting. Okay. Um, I watched, uh, you know, maybe partially subconsciously inspired by our conversation last week about, um, millennials versus gen X. Mm-hmm. I watched the quintessential gen X movie, which I had never seen. Um, Ben Stiller's reality bites. Have you seen it? Uh, I have many years ago. And that is the movie I think of when I think of the term Gen X. Right, which is something that I don't, from what I was reading about it afterwards, like Ben Stiller was, like, when promoting the movie, like, would make a wide berth around the term Gen Gen X or yeah. Generation X. He did not want it to be associated with that, but it it really is. Yeah. Um, he can not and, want that all he wants. <laughs> yeah, and uh, the movie itself is fine. It has some interesting uh, beats, I think, um, Ben Stiller is, uh, is someone that I have never fully embraced as an actor, as, mm-hmm. uh, with the exception of when he's doing an overtly like comedic role, like when he's right. Zoolander, when he's on his show, the, the Ben Stiller show. Sure. Um, he can be fantastic. Uh, as a regular guy, I, I, I have trouble getting behind him, but this is actually probably one of the better performances in his career, Yeah. which apparently... Uh, the role once he took over the directing, the role um, was more catered to him. It was supposed to be an older, an older guy hmm. uh, at at first, and they were having trouble casting it or something. And he was like, "Well, why don't we rewrite it to be 
a guy who's not that much older than Winona yeah. Ryder and I'll play it. And, um, uh, well done because he's the most interesting character in the movie by far, which, uh, uh Roger Ebert agree with me, by the way, I read mm-hmm. his review. Uh, and he was like, part of the problem is that the movie doesn't seem to realize that it's, uh, uh, yeah. a sensible villain is the only really interesting character. Um, but mostly, especially for the first half of the movie. Yeah. I, I can't really get behind this movie because in the second half, I like it better when it becomes more conventional, but it's also easier to dismiss because it's just more conventional. Yeah. The first half has, this was after Ben Stiller had done the Ben Stiller show. And yeah. so much of the first half feels like something yeah. like a parody he yeah. would have done. Dandruff. <laughs> yeah. That's exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. Like the way the character is constantly quoting like, um, you, you know, TV commercials in the 1970s, yeah. uh, uh, sitcoms and like one upping themselves and like the idea that like, Ethan Hawke's character just uses quotes from cool hand Luke as like a substitute for making an actual point. Like yeah. that seems like, so the kind of thing that the Ben Stiller show, which is, but is it, does it put, cause again, I haven't seen this in so long yeah. that choice, like with the cool hand Luke quotes, is that put out there as like funny that like he's doing this and I think it's supposed to make him seem, Cool. I think the movie Ugh. wants you to think, because this is the problem. It's a love triangle. Yeah. One of the writer has to choose between Ethan Hawke and Ben Stiller. Um, and there are some, she doesn't have to. <laughs> like, <laughs> she can do whatever she wants <laughs> yeah. uh, in real, in real life. But this is the, the, um, the, the game we're playing in the movie, Indeed. I guess. Uh, it's a love triangle. Um, she's, she's torn between, let's say she's torn between Ethan Hawke and Ben Stiller. And Ben Stiller, definitely, his character has some faults. He, you know, thinks he knows better for her than she knows for herself. Uh, but he's a character. Mm-hmm. Whereas Ethan Hawke is such a collection of postures yeah uh and it's not his fault i like ethan hawk as an actor um quite a bit i actually am actually a big fan and i think he does the best he can i have liked him as he's gotten older Uh, i i used to have a problem with him huh for Um, these reasons but this is uh, this is just a screenplay that like it's like if you're in one on writer's shoes it's like if you're gonna make a choice between these two look first off you don't have to be you know be yeah. your own person neither one of these guys uh really has your best interest in heart but if you had to make a choice ben stiller's the obvious choice because ethan Hawke's such a tool and so yeah. the movie sort of trips over itself over its own the the its own the engine that yeah. it set up because there's no way you want her to end up with ethan hawk ethan hawk unless of course you're uh if i had seen this when i was young enough to be fooled by his bullshit either yeah. as a young woman or, you know, or as a young man, like I can see, yeah, certainly, uh, that's the kind of thing that would work on someone who's too dumb. But as an adult, it's like, no, he's, he's the worst. It's like when I watched Patch Adams and I remember being like, I don't know, Philip Seymour Hoffman's character has a lot of good points. (laughs) (laughs) I I feel like he's the one I'd rather have as my doctor. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, reality bites. I'm glad I finally got around to seeing it. Uh, I did not realize that it was photographed by the great Emmanuel Lubezki. Oh, wow. Um, and, uh, I don't know that he's necessarily putting his stamp on it, but there, it does. Uh, uh yeah, there are, it's not lazily, uh, assembled. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. What do you think of Ben Stiller as a director? I was just going to say, literally just going to say, we should do a profile on him as a director. I'd I have to catch I, up on some things. I haven't seen Tropic Thunder or Walter Mitty. I haven't um, seen Walter Mitty, Walter Mitty, but I have seen Tropic Thunder. I've seen, I obviously, seen uh, 
I've seen Cable Guy. Yeah. Uh, I haven't seen Zoolander 2 either. Um, he directed that? Did he? He directed the first one, didn't he? I haven't seen either one, and I don't actually know. Oh, well, you should see Zoolander, the first one. It's really good. It's a very funny movie. Um, yeah, I'm sure that's true. It really is. I, I don't I know why you... Time, I have a uh, hard time with oafs. So yes, he directed the first one. Did he direct Zoolander 2? Yes, he did. Okay. Um, yeah, so I guess yeah. we would both have things to catch up on. At the very least, I should, I should show you um david duchovny duchovny's big scene from zoolander which is the comedic right. highlight of the movie okay um, you got me but a lot of it's funny anyway um yeah but ben stiller is hard to pin down as a director yeah um and i think he did his honestly he did his best work as a director on the ben stiller show which sure. i will go to my grave saying is one of the most underrated and greatest sketch yeah. comedy series in the history of the format yeah one that uh, people still don't talk about much which surprises uh, unfortunately me. yeah i mean it's uh, even with the, uh, the, the, the ever rising star of Bob Odenkirk, yeah. uh, people seem to stop, at, uh, you know, going backwards at Mr. Show and don't go back to, he was on the Ben Stiller show. And maybe like, people see it too much as a relic of the time. Like, I mean, you've got Andy Dick, Janine Garofalo, Ben Stiller before anybody knew who he was. Yeah. And I think people could just, and a lot of the, a lot of their targets are very early nineties. Yeah. Um, so maybe uh, it's that but it's like yeah but if they're if they're hitting the target then that's so all that brilliantly matters. some of, like some of those sketches are so brilliantly constructed and they they i think are oftentimes on par with like the later seasons of the kids in the hall show in terms mm-hmm. of sketches not just being like stage sketches filmed like they're mm-hmm. filmic they're you know their sketches are little movies yeah. uh, and that's something that would go on to be a big part of mr show our uh, our roommate Cole and I uh-huh. we watched that show, and uh, there was a line that he and I would say back and forth regularly, where it was, we would say, uh, "I'll make brain stew for dinner when I'm the cook, Jack." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's from one of the greatest <laughs> sketches of all time. Oh is boy, where, uh, Bob Odenkirk plays Charlie Manson, except um, he's wait, is that the one? Because there he played Charlie Manson in a bunch of sketches. Is that the Lassie That's one? That's Lassie. Yeah, yeah it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a like perfect style parody yeah. of Lassie, but instead of a border collie, the family has Charlie Manson for a yeah. pet. Uh, it's <laughs> so funny. So he comes in like a dog and just like uh-huh. messing up the kitchen and then yeah. Janine Garofalo. And by the way, like Janine Garofalo and Andy Dick are kind of like the unsung heroes of that sketch because they have to be pitch perfect. Yeah. And so she's like, she's, she goes quiet Manson. I'm cooking dinner and goes, well, man, we'll have brain stew for dinner when I'm the cook Jack. <laughs> yeah. I like, oh. And then he answers the phone and he says something about like, I'm in your children. And Janine Garofalo is like, that's just, that's just Manson. Don't worry. He's not in anyone's children. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Uh, what a great, what a great show. Absolutely. All right. Uh, what's next for you? All right. So anyway, we're taking way too long. I was watching a TV show. Oh wait, but I forgot my point about okay. Ben Stiller as a director. Oh yes. Which is that I can't pin him down. Like to what extent is he, he's somewhere between an auteur and a journeyman. He seems to be like neither fish nor fowl in a lot of ways. Cause he does big you know, studio comedies, but they're also like, there's, they're him. Yeah. But I also don't know what him is. Do you know who he reminds me of as a director? Of whom does he remind you as a director? Whatever. Uh, <laughs> he remind another actor who occasionally directs Danny DeVito. Oh, that's yeah. That's a cert where 
you can't always but, place it, but like I feel both yeah. of them have a certain darkness. Both of them are are attempting bigger things sometimes, but are willing to be as silly as possible. I think they're the same ingredients in different portions. Sure, because I think Danny DeVito sometimes leans a little too much into trying to be dark. Uh, you know, sure. And I think um, things like as much as I have some respect for like Death to Smoochie, I do mm-hmm. feel like sometimes Danny DeVito comes off as trying a little too hard when he's when he's making a, a dark movie. But the Cable Guy is trying pretty damn hard. And I don't love the Cable Guy. Yeah. Um, but I think Ben Stiller, he, the ingredient he has a little too much of is he's a little too much of a populist, which is Maybe. something that is at odds with his comedic sensibilities. Because when, yeah. when, when Ben Stiller is really on the mark, he's a really vicious and very pointed satirist. Yeah. Um, uh, again, go back to the Ben Stiller show and see like him <laughs> making fun of Bono, which is like the, the YouTube <laughs> right. like Bono thing, which is an entire episode. It's one of the episodes yeah. they did where the entire episode wraparound is like a YouTube centric thing. Um, and it's, uh, God, it's, it's it's not mean it's just so incisive yeah. as to like be uncomfortably hilarious yeah. and that is at odds i think with his uh he also feels the need to be a people pleaser when he makes movies well and and the perfect the perfect uh encapsulation of him as a director is tropic thunder where you have a certain populist take but also one that is often very dark and fairly incisive and they're just in some in some cases it's casting choices or character arcs, and in other cases it's just like, what made you choose this? Like, are you going for a broad audience or me? I can't really tell. That's kind of how I often feel about yeah. Ben Stiller. Yeah, and this is not a complaint. I'm a I'm I would if I had to come down on any side of the argument, I would say I'm a fan of Ben Stiller. I think so too. Uh, I mean, at least to the to the extent that I'm. I'm interested in what he's doing. Yeah. Um, uh, I think he, he generally picks interesting, interesting things. Uh, some of them don't turn out great. Um, but some of them do. I would, t- I would rather have somebody who tries interesting things and they don't always work out than somebody some milk toast director who just makes, right. you know, yeah. run of the mill stuff and they, right. and they work out great, but they're a, a solid C plus all the time. Um, Okay. All right. Now you can move on. Sorry. So I was watching a TV show, which I'll be mentioning later. But in the TV show, somebody. Foreshadowing. It, oh, absolutely. Stay tuned. Um, in the TV show, somebody happened to mention ah, train travel. That's the life for me. And my thought was, well, time to watch Murder on the Orient Express. <laughs> uh, it literally took one line for uh-huh. me to realize, yeah, trains. Well, I know what I need to do. So I rewatched Murder on the Orient Express, directed by Sidney Lumet. Yeah. Uh, you've seen the film, correct? I have seen it. Okay. I've also seen Trans-Siberian, which I'm seeing you have a copy of. Yeah, but that's not a casual watch. Whereas <laughs> Murder on the Orient Express is absolutely a okay. casual watch. Um, and one that has, you know, by, by his own admission, Sidney Lumet wanted it to be like this big glamorous thing. Uh, with a, a true all, all-star cast. And I think I've probably said this on the show before. When I first saw the film, I checked it out from the library on VHS. It just seemed like my kind of thing. And at the time, literally the only cast member I knew was Sean Connery. Uh, and so I really locked into his character. But of course, he's only one part of a larger ensemble. And uh, and I still liked the movie. But now that I'm older and I know who all of these people are... Um, I just take tremendous joy in this film. And of course it's, it's a whodunit. It's very talky. It's everything that I enjoy. Um, but I think the, the thing that really jumps out at me is, um, 
is Albert Finney as Hercule Poirot, Poirot, pardon me, who he plays him as such a weird grotesque, you know, like he's got, it's been a long time for me. So he's, he's Belgian and he plays him as, you know, everybody keeps mistaking him for French. And so he just plays like this crazy accent. And he also, he doesn't play him as hunchback, but he has a very interesting gait and he's clearly wearing a false nose and he's got this goofy mustache. And when he goes to bed at night, he wears a hairnet and has like a mustache guard. Uh, there's just so much, it's such an idiosyncratic performance, but nonetheless is just fascinating. Um, but the rest of the cast is just marvelous. You know, you've got uh, Anthony Perkins, you have Richard Widmark, Lauren Bacall, Wendy Hiller, you know, Ingrid Bergman in an Oscar winning role and just goes on and on. And it just knowing what we know about Sidney Lumet, which is especially in the 70s, which is a guy who made either gritty movies with, mm-hmm. you know, Dog Day Afternoon or just really strong satire like Network this really doesn't seem like his kind of movie, but if you see him as an actor's director, first and foremost, this is absolutely his kind of movie. And it's, and it deals with some, some relative, it it acknowledges some of the darkness of the story because we are dealing with sort of a a Lindbergh baby type situation that led to the complete destruction of a family. Mm. Um, and it, it doesn't shy away from how horrible that is. Um, and uh, it's it's a movie that, you know, if you like all the things that I talked about, which is great acting, really fun writing, you know, uh, uh, a nice whodunit, then it's it's the movie for you. I'm, I'm always happy to rewatch it. All right. Uh, I watched a movie that I probably won't be rewatching now because it's not good, but because it was uh, a tough sit. Um, uh, Netflix's new documentary, Audrey and Daisy, I watched. Okay. Um, which uh, the... The name of the movie comes from just the two most prominent cases um, that it looks at, but um, it, it actually looks at a lot, a lot more than just those two. It's basically about high school girls who were raped, um, and the the aftermath. And the, the the movie's sort of unstated point is that it's it's almost like as if being raped isn't bad enough. Mm-hmm. What happens to these girls after from all sorts of different, uh, uh, depending on, on who their, um, uh, attackers were, it's often very difficult for them to get people to believe them. Um, the Daisy is from the, um, case in Maryville, Missouri, which made a lot of headlines at the time. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you remember. Um, but it was, you know, some, uh, you know, uh, uh, the, the, the boy, his, father is like a local politician and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And, um, so it seemed like the movie just makes it seem like, uh, the, the second battle after being a rape survivor is getting people to actually believe you. Yeah. Uh, and then the other thing that happens that's, um, uh, heartbreaking is the public shaming and the way that, Twitter and Facebook are used and the way that these girls reputations, uh, are dragged through the mud and they, and they're, they're bullied often by uh, more often than not actually by other girls. Um, Hmm. where they're being called sluts and all like it's, does it hypothesize as to why that might happen? Uh, I mean, I, I think it's looking at it. This is what I want to get at. And I, and I tweeted about this after seeing the movie. Um, I don't have kids. I have no intention of having kids. But um, 
I've often been a big advocate um, in the abstract, not having kids, of sex education being something that should happen uh, uh, early. You know, don't wait until your kids are already probably sexually active. Because I think that's what happens with a lot of parents is that they don't want to admit that their kids are sexually active and they have the sex talk after uh, the ball has already started rolling. So, yes, talk about the birds and the bees. That's very important. But I think we also need to talk about um, consent and culpability because I think the problem, I think we have culturally a definition of rape that is very narrow and not actually that common. Uh, And I think what that leads to is a lot of, I, I think there are a lot Uh, this is true of the boys interviewed in the movie. I think there are a lot of guys and probably women too, but, um, you know, rapists are more often men. I think there are a lot of guys who have committed what, what I would think of and what a lot of people would think of as rape and don't think that they have. Right. Uh, And I think that's, I don't want to sound like I'm feeling sorry for them, but it is a, a cultural problem. You know, when people, it's what people will talk about when they use words like rape culture, which is something that like, I don't, I try, I try to avoid using, like I consider myself a social, social justice warrior. And I say that half with tongue in cheek, cause I know yeah. it's supposed to be an insult, but a lot of the terms that come up like rape culture, I try not to use too often because I think once a thing becomes compacted into a tiny word like that, it becomes white noise and becomes very easy to dismiss. And it becomes um, infinitely more simplified. Uh, right. Yeah. But I think this is the kind of thing that, that we're talking about is that, um, we, we need to have a better understanding of what, uh, of what consent is. And we need to have more sympathy for people whose, uh, consent or inability con- to consent in both of the main cases, the girls were drunk. Mm-hmm. Um, and that doesn't seem to have uh, entered into the the situation. Because people think, when people think of rapists, they think of the end of Fat Girl. Did you ever see the movie Fat Girl? No. Which literally has like a raving lunatic drag a girl out of a car and like, and, and force himself on her. Like Based, based on what you have said about Fat Girl, I don't have much desire to see it. Because you're not a big fan of it. I'm right? not a big fan of it, no. But um, like, uh, you know, this, this rape via via uh, acquaintances mm-hmm. is much more common it's much more insidious and it's also as we as we see even among people who who i think are fighting for the girls uh rape is an incredibly difficult thing to prove after the fact yeah um and that makes it easier for people who don't care to prove it like in the maryville missouri case right they like I know there are differences in, in values and stuff, but the interviews uh, with the sh- the 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 uh, Nawada County, I think, is what it, where Maryville is. The county sheriff, he says things that I cannot wrap my head around, and he says them like they're normal. Basically, his he he talks about, and this is something that that we saw in the news recently with the the Stanford rape uh, right. case. He talks about the boys as if they're victims too. Right. Uh, and I, I think that's, it's hard for me to put into words, but I think that's what I'm talking about in terms of rape culture is that we like, because these boys may not have even really realized 
they probably, I mean, they certainly realized they were crossing some line, but they wouldn't have thought of it as rape necessarily. Right. Um, especially in the other, uh, the non-Maryville case, the, the Audrey case, um, where the boys themselves are interviewed because they were, um, uh, their their identities are, uh, are are hidden, but um, they actually were uh, found guilty and uh, or or I'm not sure if found guilty is the right term because they were found guilty in the criminal case, but then there was also a civil suit, mm-hmm. and part of the civil suit uh, was that they, with their identity the identities obscured, had to apologize and sit for an interview for this movie. Hmm. So uh, they they're not like mustache twirling villains like right. they are frankly they come across as kind of dim but not but in a normal way not like i don't yeah. think they're mentally challenged or anything yeah that that's uh, a that's a different discussion uh, yeah um but they don't seem to really understand what the like the big takeaway they seem to to has more to do with like uh they say the one says something like well i've learned that girls take gossip more seriously than guys. Like that's what he learned. Not like that, uh, me, like that him like digitally penetrating a passed out drunk girl was wrong. Mm-hmm. It's that people were so mean to her after the fact, uh, and that he should have more empathy or sympathy for girls because the gossip is going to be worse for them. Like that's what he takes away. And it's like, I guess that's part of what happened here. But, uh, the, the, the movie is like it's heartbreaking. How old are these guys? Um, like college age? Uh, no, these these were high, high school uh, okay. age, and this is a few years after the fact. They're probably college age or high school seniors now, but they were young college or young high school boys okay. at the time that this happened um, in 2012. Uh, it's, um, it's yeah. I don't mean it, to smile because obviously it, I'm not. I, this isn't yeah. funny, but at the same time, like what an odd takeaway yeah but you also wonder how much not to not to excuse them obviously but like you also wonder how much of a of that type of takeaway is just sort of implanted by parents uh who are saying like it's like well you know the big problem here is oh right 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 yeah because the parents don't want to you know admit that their sons did something but i think i don't know kids have yeah, these are these these are pretty much all all the cases. I think all the cases uh, are high school girls um, and high school boys in most cases as well. Um, so kids in general have less empathy than adults, and I think that's part of the problem. I think sure, but um, I do think conversations about these things need to happen with kids earlier because this is a the movie illustrates by pointing out the commonalities in all these cases all over the country, um, that there are some fundamental lapses in our understanding of consent and empathy and culpability and responsibility and all, and and all these things. Uh, and that rape doesn't, doesn't necessarily mean literally like busting in with a, you know, a mask on and like pinning someone down, like it, there are all the sorts of things that are that are uh, a part of the the, the definition. Um, anyway, it was a heartbreaking movie. I went. Uh, it's on Netflix. You can watch it now. I went to a screening of it because um, one of uh, two of the girls, Daisy, and one of the other girls, um, Delaney, who's uh, um, profiled in the movie, um, were doing a Q and A, as well as Tori Amos. 
uh, of whom I was a big fan as a kid and still uh, kind of am. Um, and she, uh, sort of like Lady Gaga did last year with the yeah. hunting ground, she composed a, a song, um, for, uh, for the movie. Um, I would say I'm a, I'm a Lady Gaga fan. I would say this song is better than the Lady Gaga song. Uh, let me suggest if you'll pardon me, <laughs> how could it not be? <laughs> uh, I don't think the Lady Gaga song is terrible. But it's um, not, I mean, it's not very lyrically complex. <laughs> Let's put it that, that way. Well, that is, there's plenty, you know, I'm a punk rocker from way back. That's uh, not high on my list of uh, prerequisites. But yeah, the, that Hunting Ground song is not great. Um, this song is, is good. It's called Flicker. Yeah, it's, yeah, it, 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 it because of the nature of the, of the song for the Hunting Ground, of course, you don't want to bash it. But at the same time, you just feel like, it's like, I feel like you're definitely, you're selling a not great song with a lot of emotion and good for you. Yeah. But that doesn't change the fact that like, this is a, uh, the song itself is a uh, pretty standard. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, and when people are like, I can't believe it won. It's like, I can't believe it lost. And it's like, eh, I, I can, that performance was good, but, uh, but that yeah. song is not great. And maybe this one will be nominated um, maybe, and, and not win, but hopefully it'll bring some attention to the movie. I think people should see it. And I think it's, the movie is, um, and I said this uh, in my, on my, when I was tweeting about it, um, it's upsetting and there are some graphic things discussed, but it's not so far afield that you couldn't, when I'm talking about like talking to kids early, um, if you're a comfortable enough, uh, you know, parent um this is a movie you could probably could watch with um say a 12 13 year old mm-hmm. um as they're getting into uh being sexually active but again parents don't like to think of their kids being sexually active at 12 and 13 it's tough because like what if you uh, like uh, what uh, don't get me wrong like being aware of things is more important than any anything else but I do find myself thinking like if I was shown this at age 13, I feel like I'd be terrified. Just be like, all right, so I think I'll hold off on ever having <laughs> sex ever just in case. Uh, cause I might do something wrong and I like, there might be something I didn't, a question I didn't ask. Yeah. Well, this or is something. why the, uh, a lot of you, you're hearing more and more people saying, you know, the, the line for years has always been no means no. Right. And you've, heard some people start to lean more towards a yes means yes sort of thing like sure. just to you know the uh to be on the safe side get a yes get consent and there's a way you know i think the, something that really gets under my skin is when people say like oh you're but you know that takes away the 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 magic or whatever it's like grow up if you can't talk about it and still keep the things going you're not mature enough to to be having sex right now you could always so, and also you could always you don't have to say it clinically you could just say like hey you good with this yeah you know? exactly <laughs> like it doesn't have, fine. you don't have to like yeah pull out a form like on carbon copy like carbon paper like you don't have to get a signature yeah but uh yes get get consent it's um, fine it's it's easy to do and, and there's th- a way that you can keep it keep i think it where, sexy. where it starts <laughs> Well, you can. <laughs> uh, this, oh boy, uh, I think where where it really starts to get dicey is when both parties are drunk and both parties are conscious. Mm-hmm. Because then, because I've I've known some people that say that like, and there's consent given. Yeah, but but then like I've I've heard instances where like 
the 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 woman in this instance uh, the next day sobers up and says like oh i absolutely should not have done that and i was in no position to give consent okay but he is but the guy was also drunk he's not like a, a sober guy taking advantage of a drunk woman like it was two people making bad bad decisions and some people will call that rape and that's when it's well, like i this is yeah. exhausting to it's me. It, yeah it's obviously there's no cut and dried um no. thing uh i mean i would hope that um both parties in that case would be self-aware enough um yeah uh, and sympathetic enough of one another to uh, to yeah. understand they made a mistake um yeah. together but uh yeah it is it is a very very difficult thing to it's difficult enough to define and it's yeah. uh unfortunately it's incredibly difficult to prove that, i think and that's really really frustrating i think what gets me is that there's just such a and i don't this is going to sound shitty i apologize but like it seems it appears so subjective you know not not that someone not that it, it's not one of those things where it's like it's like oh it's a woman who uh, regrets it the next day i'm not saying it's that but it's just like there is an there's almost an element of like this felt particularly wrong this felt like i was violated mm-hmm. like something wasn't asked something wasn't said and and that can lead to uh, a woman like saying like am i to blame for this you know like yeah. there's there's just everything is so it's just it's so like frustrating because you also if it's like a 15 year old guy or something like that who feels like he's trying to do everything the right way and then he didn't ask the right thing or whatever it is like and i don't mean to like defend rapists but at the same time i also don't like the idea of of like uh guilty until proven innocent or something like that this is Um, why i'm saying teach kids early yeah that that consent is uh absolutely essential just get Get a yes, as there is a song actually. Uh, it's a good song called, called "Get a Yes." Called "Get a Yes," yeah. All right, um, uh, and that is about this. Get a get a yes, and te- teach kids they have to get a yes. And this speaks to what you were talking about as far as the maturity level of the film. And this this is something that Roger Ebert said a lot: is that a movie having a movie being rated R mm-hmm. or having language or something. I remember this something you said about the movie Mean Creek: is that yes, there's a lot of language. It's language that, as far as the MPA can, is concerned, would preclude it from being seen by a younger audience, which is the audience that needs to see it most. And, and the audience that, if adults were honest with themselves, is absolutely using this language. No, no question about it. Um, I was, I think I was, in, I was in third grade when kids started saying "fuck" regularly on the playground. Oh, I don't even know. Like. Because that's the thing. I had older. I had an older brother. Oh yeah, I and did. he had I was, friends. I was so. the oldest. Yeah, you were probably even even earlier. Yeah. But yeah, it was. I mean, at first it was a little like fun and daring. Like yeah, and you're probably using it a bit too often just to like sure start cool. Um, but uh, yeah, and and I know I don't know about to what extent, but I know in in middle school in sixth grade, kids were sexually active in in some way. Mm-hmm. Not me. But <laughs> some kids, some kids were. Yeah. So just parents get over whatever ickiness you feel about that and, yeah. you know, realize it's not that these kids are particularly mature. It's that so-called mature subject, adult subject matter or whatever, adult yeah. situations um, are happening a lot earlier yeah. than, than we like to think. And then we even seem to remember, like you were all people. I don't understand this. Okay, here we go. As a non-parent, okay, it often seems to me that 
people who are parents are quicker to forget what it was like to be kids. And I don't understand that habit. You're around your kids. Mm -hmm. But maybe it's because having a kid makes you seem so much older or feel so much older to yourself that you forget. But I feel like, I mean, this is, I'm making a broad generalization, but I feel like I have a much easier time identifying with a teenager than someone my age who has, uh, someone who's almost a teenager, which they could. Sure. Yeah. Um, why is that? They're around teenagers more often than I am almost never around teenagers. <laughs> I, have very I, little I am to. a lot and it's uh, getting to be a problem. Um, um, but do you see what, do, do you agree that this seems to be the case? It's, uh, Hmm. I don't know. It's, it's th- this specific thing is not a thing I talk about with my friends very often because their kids are so young at this point, yeah, but I do true. have an ex-girlfriend who has a 14 year old. Maybe even a 15-year-old at this point. It's not, not yours, is it? <laughs> not to my knowledge. I don't know. I was pretty drunk. <laughs> that seemed like an insensitive joke to make, right? Yeah, but it was funny, so that's, um, that makes it okay. Exactly. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, but, uh, yeah, and so it's... And I'm trying to think, like, you know, uh, if and when I have children... You know, how far do you go in that discussion and when do you have it? Because, you know, I think of my situation and I'll go ahead and say I wasn't sexually active until I was in my 20s, you know, and that was a choice that I was making. Um, And so, but at the same, but here's the, you know what, let me put it this way. I would probably give, if I had a, if I had a son or a daughter, I'd probably give them the porn talk early on, which is like, Hey, uh, this can be a problem. You know, and okay. I, and, and also this is from an addiction standpoint. Yeah. And also, um, this is fun and everything, but this is not what real sex is. That's right. the thing that I think right. people should understand. But like, I guess look, if you're going to do it, stick to webcams. All right. Like just a, <laughs> a nice loving couple, you know, thank you. Um, okay. Sorry. We, uh, we should probably move on. Yeah, let's go. What's, what's, what's next for you? Okay. So next for me, I watched the new scream factory blu-ray release of John Carpenter's the thing. Oh no what i feel like i'm in my head about our top actresses episode and like feeling bad about how many like so like important movies i haven't seen okay so you're gonna make me admit that i've never seen john carpenter's the thing david you would love <laughs> it the most i'm sure i'm I telling would. you i like john carpenter i like um, Kurt russell oh great actors all around keith david marvelous keith david I like him. um so I'll say this, uh, the thing has been released on Blu-ray before, um, and then it got a pretty nice DVD release, uh, several years ago with a really nice, I think like an hour and a half long making of, uh, and, uh, but Shout Factory or, uh, sorry, Scream Factory in this case, um, they are really doing great things. They're on the uh, ball. They're on the ball when it comes to special features. First off, it's a beautiful transfer, as I'm sure you can imagine, um, but then also, so they, they retained that 90-minute making of because it's fairly definitive. But then they also have a number of featurettes. One is, you know, talking to a number of the supporting actors uh, and all these years later, including a, a delightful Wilfred Brimley, who is still around mm-hmm. and was sitting in such a way as to look like he was, if you'll pardon me, Humpty Dumpty. Because he was sitting in a way that really, sh- really, it downplayed his neck. Uh, like he didn't have one. 
And there comes a delightful moment that they chose to leave in, which was fun because he was talking. There comes a moment when he's talking about the actors getting along at the exact same moment that within the frame, his dog and his cat are fighting. <laughs> and then the person off camera says, they get along. Do they get along better than them? He goes, Oh my, yes. Um, so it's delightful. Uh, so it's a, a lot. Of, so there's, but they also have, you know, special features about the, about the, the sound department. They have a 12 minute long featurette about the guy who did the novelization. Wow. Yeah. Who is it? I forget his name, but he's done a, a ton of them, especially it's, sci-fi. Yeah. Um, is it, what's his name? Oh, no, I'm forgetting. There's three names. Yeah. Yes. Uh, so yeah, it's probably him. Alan Dean Foster. Something like that. There, yeah. Alan is in there somewhere. Yeah. Um, I think that, I think that's his name. So, uh, yeah, he was, he was the guy. I don't know if he still is doing that. Uh, there still are novelizations by the way. Yeah. I remember a couple of years ago being behind someone, um, in a movie theater and waiting for the movie to start and they were reading the man of steel novelization. I don't think I understand novelizations. Well, th- what's interesting about them to me, um, and was as a, as a kid and a budding cinephile is that they're in order for them to come out, uh, as movie tie-ins, they're written based on earlier versions of the, of the script. Yes, so a lot, a lot of times the novelizations differ. Um, yeah, I remember the natural born killers novelization, which is based on Tarantino's original, uh, script, which wow. is drastically, I don't know if you know the whole backstory. I don't. It's drastically different. Like Tarantino's original script for natural born killers was essentially, um, entirely, it was going to be almost like a, like a, almost like a fake documentary in that it would be interviews with survivors and then flashbacks slash dramatizations mm-hmm. or whatever that you'd see. So everything, the entire movie took place after everything had happened and it was like going to jump back and forth in time and have interview interview. There'd be actors, but yeah. like playing people who had, who had survived because you know, the whole yeah. thing with, with Mickey and Mallory is they always leave one person alive to tell right. the tale. So it would be, it was like a series of interviews with those people and, and flashbacks. Um, hmm. It's really interesting. I think it'd be a it, very different movie. Uh, yeah, I think you can, you can find the whole script online. Um, huh. you can probably go to Drew scriptorama if that place still exists. <laughs> Do you remember that website? I do remember that yeah. website. And it's, you know, probably, uh, I can't remember, uh, like a GeoCities website or something <laughs> like that. Um, but yeah, so, uh, and that's the thing I was going to talk about the movie itself, but you haven't seen it. So I don't want to spoil anything okay. for you. Okay. But um, I will say that. It's my wa- fault that I haven't seen it. I've seen it a bunch at this point. And so, uh, you know, it's it's not springing anything new on me, but there's a couple things that I like uh, and a couple things that, that, I'm thinking about more this time, specifically the idea that, you know, cause the thing takes, takes people over and then mimics them. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I like is that the film never really explains when someone is revealed to be the thing, you immediately think back over their behavior for the last, however long. And you try to think, okay, when did the thing take, uh, take them over or consume them or whatever? Uh, and you come to realize like, okay, so is there some shred of the in, in, original person's consciousness? Because there comes a moment when a guy who is later revealed to be uh, the, uh, a thing, um, there comes a moment when he is given the opportunity to basically be, uh, be in charge of security. So he would have like the only gun. He has uh-huh. that. He's been, he's given that opportunity 
which if you're the thing and you're trying to uh, look out for yourself, this is a, this is great. But he, in that moment, he says, guys, I don't know. I don't think I'm up to it. And in that moment, there's an element almost of, is the thing doing this or is there some right. shred of this guy who is around, who, who knows enough to be like, something is wrong with me and I don't think I can be trusted. And the fact that we're never, that's never spelled out for a while. It bothered me and it felt like a flaw, but now I kind of embrace it. And I like that. Um, acting is great all around, including, and especially, and I've always liked his performance, but every time, every movie I've ever seen, the aforementioned Wilford Brimley in. Uh-huh. I think he's marvelous. Let's see. Now, had Cocoon. Cocoon. The Natural. Natural. That Ewok movie. That's right. Yeah. Name of which I forgot. But uh, Battle for Endor? Is that it? Or is it the other one? I think Battle for Endor is his. Okay. That's the second one. Oh, that is the second one? Okay. Yeah. Uh, I believe. So, uh, but no, he was also in Absence of Malice. He was in The Firm. He was in a wonderful episode of Seinfeld, uh, where he's the postmaster general. Oh, that's right. Um, yes. And there's just when my first video store, my coworker Bobby and I would pick character because we it was a instead of listening to music, we played movies over mm-hmm. the screens. We would pick character actors and do like, all right, this shift we're watching this just their movies. And I think that's why I named Cocoon the Natural and Battle for Endor because there was one day we watched all three of those. Oh boy, during our shift. Uh, he's also in the China syndrome. He's, there's a very specific right. quality to him where he's the guy who's very no nonsense. And so there's an element and that's why they, that's why they have him play the character that he does in Seinfeld. He's the guy who comes in, sets his briefcase on the table <laughs> and is like, all right, by God, what are we going to, you know? <laughs> uh, but what's interesting about him in the thing is there's, he's just the way he carries himself and also just the way he looks. He is an incredibly logical guy who just seems to know things and he's very reasonable. And so there comes a moment when he starts to lose it. And so the question is, is he losing his mind or is losing it the most logical thing you can do given what he now knows? Because he knows before anybody else what exactly what is going on. And uh, it's a wonderful performance all around. And uh, just the movie is great. David, you got to see it. Okay. Uh, last movie for me, I watched, uh, this is kind of a rewatch, but it's not. I watched Christoph Kieslowski's A Short Film About Killing. Okay. I had, uh, I don't know if you know, but it's, it's an extended version of one of the Decalogue episodes. Oh, okay. And so I'd, I've seen all of the Decalogue, and so I'd seen the hour-long, uh, whichever, uh, I don't remember which number it is, um, which he then expanded. So the the name is misleading because we think of a short film as being shorter than a feature. Right. But this is actually, it's longer than its original version. Yeah. It's a feature. It's just short for a feature. It's like 84 minutes or sure. something like that. Um, and it's, um, yeah, it's, it's astounding. Um, uh, Christoph Kieslowski um, is one of the all-time greats, uh, or was one of the all-time greats. Uh, it's a deceptively simple uh, premise or, or construction. Basically, most of the first half of the movie details a, a young man um, preparing and leading up to making the decision to commit a murder, and he mm-hmm. murders a taxi driver. And then... 
the movie cuts very abruptly from the murder to we don't see any of the investigation or his arrest or trial. It cuts to him being sentenced to death. And then the second half of the movie is about the lead up and preparation to his execution. Mm-hmm. So there are two killings in the movie. Right. Um, and the movie essentially just puts them side by side and compares them. Yeah. Um, and it has the through line the with of the um of the um the 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 the, the What's the word I'm looking for? The 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 attorney, the defending attorney, the mm-hmm. state whatever uh, state court assigned. Was that court appointed? Yeah, the court appointed guy who, um, in a, I guess this is a little bit of a you know uh, movieish screenwriterly trick, like graduates and passes the bar, becomes officially a lawyer on the day of the murder, and then ends mm-hmm. up being assigned um, defending this uh, this guy. So his his story bridges the two um the two halves of uh, of the story um and that's that's it but there's so much more going on under the surface um and it's um really strikingly photographed by um Slavomir Idziak one of my favorite uh DPs um who also shot blue for uh mm-hmm. Kieslowski um and also shot uh Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix my favorite Harry Potter movie oh. um I think he also did Black Hawk Down, I want to say. Um, Those are very so yeah. different movies. Yes, but uh, he's a fantastic, uh, fantastic DP. So uh, I won't go too much. I think I've kind of covered it already, but um, it's on Hulu. You can watch it if you have, a Hulu, if you have Hulu. Yeah, I my association with uh, Kieslowski is unfortunately uh, pretty small. I've seen the Three Colors trilogy, and it's amazing. I've seen two episodes of the Decalogue, and I think that's all I've seen of his. Okay, there, I mean, I, I haven't seen much of his pre that stuff because he worked mm-hmm. a lot in polish tv and, and right. directed a lot of things before before that but that's kind of where i jump on is with well there's double life of veronique i've seen double life of veronique the decalogue and the three colors and i've seen a short film about killing there's also a short short film about love which is an expanded version of another of the decalogue hmm. uh, episodes and i haven't seen that one that one yet Man, um, this guy just keeps going to the same fucking well uh <laughs> yeah uh, and then, of course, I've seen the Tom Tickver film Heaven, which was um, based on the screenplay Kieslowski was writing mm. when he died and was um, going to be the first in another trilogy like The Three Colors, uh, Heaven, Hell, and Purgatory. But he only ever finished Heaven, and that's and Tom Tickver made it uh, in English with Giovanni Ribisi and Kate Blanchett. Right. Um, I can, I decent, can picture the cover. Movie. It's decent, yeah. Um, okay, so my last film is a film that I saw for school. Okay, I've back, started. I've started school. school, and uh, back in school like Rodney Dangerfield. Yeah, doing the doing the triple Lindy. I never saw it. Oh, okay. I've heard it's good. Uh, I, I I have memories of seeing it as a kid and thinking it was good. I haven't seen it since then. I'll it's have probably, to watch it. Pretty corny, uh, provided of course I'm not reading constantly. I'm not super thrilled about school at the moment. I'll be <laughs> honest with you, uh, because each instructor seems to think that theirs is the only class you're taking. Oh. Do you know what I'm talking yeah, about? I do. This is all bringing back why oh, yeah. school sucks and why I like, see when we, gra- when we graduated college and I knew people who were like going on to grad school, I was like, why would you do more of this? Like I did as a, I did That's as what much. I felt about high school. <laughs> yeah, you know? that's true. Yeah. School, school sucks. Yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm, I, now, I'm not 
planning on this. Uh It's not like I'm making the decision that this is how it's going to be. I'm just predicting I'm going to hate every single second of school. So it's going to be a long 15 months. All right. Um, But, uh, but I do get to see some movies from time to time, uh, including Samuel Fuller's white dog, which I have not, have not seen. Uh, I am not that familiar with Samuel Fuller. I've seen Shock Corridor, which I liked quite a bit, and I think I've probably seen one or two of his other movies, but, uh, but I was aware of White Dog as uh, an, interesting, um, an interesting commentary on, on racism. It came out in the early 80s, and it uses this concept of uh, uh, a, young, a young woman um, hits a dog with her car and then she takes it to the vet and then she keeps it for herself. And, and it is this gorgeous white uh, German shepherd Mm. and it is, you know, it is quite literally a white dog, but it is later referred to as a, a white dog, which is a dog that has been trained to attack black people. Um, which is apparently a thing that does exist and that is uh, horrifying. Yeah. And, uh, and so the story, once it really kicks in, you, you, it's actually more about these, uh, animal trainers and their attempt to reprogram the dog. Um, when anybody else is saying, just shoot it, they say, no, we, we need to make this change. Um, the two trainers are played by Paul Winfield, who's an actor I always enjoy seeing. And then uh, Burl Ives, who is also uh, delightful. Uh, the film is, it has a really clunky, on-the-nose script, but in a way that doesn't bother me. In a way that that I find, I don't know, it's almost like an Oliver Stone film in some ways. Uh, no, I, the film does not feel like an Oliver Stone film, but as far as, you know, characters just declaring what they want and declaring what they're trying to do. Uh, I'm kind of okay with it. Um, sort of like changing lanes in that way. Hmm. Uh, and so where it is most effective is when it engages in almost a horror movie type tone and imagery, you know, where it feels almost like Cujo or like Jaws or any other creature feature, but because this creature is now a symbol of a larger thing, you know, one of the things that I really liked about 12 Years a Slave is how much, how often Steve McQueen dipped into horror imagery and especially sound design mm-hmm. uh, to really emphasize, to show that, yeah, this was not merely horrible, but it was horrific. And that is kind of what the film does, you know, so that when this, when this very beautiful dog sees a, a, a black person and it just bears its teeth and stuff, it, it looks, you suddenly realize how dangerous it can be and mm-hmm. it can just turn on a dime. And, uh, there's a lot going on in the movie and it's, it's, it's a film that I would, I would recommend people see. It's not amazing. It's not going to bring any crazy revelations, but, uh, but it does some interesting things with characters and character dynamics and, and from a, from a symbolism standpoint, there's a lot going on there and it's, it's a film I'm very glad I saw and it was recently made available by the criterion collection. So it, it too might also be on Hulu. I don't know if it is, but it might be. Okay. Let's move into TV. Um, I don't have too much to say, um, especially about this first one. Um, I'm just going to say that, Modern Family's back, and I've watched a couple episodes now, and uh, the, 
How long has it been since you've enjoyed Modern Family? You know, it, for the last few seasons, it has been like the kind of thing where every week I would turn it on hoping like this could be one of the good ones. Yeah. And sometimes it would be. Um, but I'm not sure there were any really good episodes last season. Um, and we're two episodes into this season and, uh, it's pretty dire. Um, I'm sticking with it. I feel like it's something that, um, my wife and I talk, we watch it together mm-hmm. uh, and we talk about it every week. Like, um, the show is terrible now. And then we, neither one of us is willing to like walk away and not watch it anymore. Yeah. Uh, because I, I I felt like I was a defender of it at first. I think not that it depends on who you're talking about. Um, to many people, it's not a show that needed defending because it was one of right. the biggest shows on on TV and has won a shit ton of of Emmys. But um, to you know jaded snobby snobby assholes like you and me, sure. uh, I did feel like I had to <laughs> defend it um, a lot. But now I can't even I can't even do that. It's just I don't know. I don't know why I'm still watching it. Uh, what, what, what did you watch on television? So uh, I'll go ahead and say, obviously, I watched Survivor. You can go and listen to Jen and I talk about it uh, at BattleshipRetention.com. You can click on Worth Playing For and, and listen to what we had to say about it. Um, some interesting developments um, from a, a Gen X and a Millennials standpoint. Um, but thankfully, they're just, again, a, as the characters get more involved in the game itself, the more they realize, okay, I got to throw these labels away uh because that's actually just going to hinder me playing the game and uh but there but you know as there are a couple of very good looking people on the uh, millennials tribe that uh find each other good looking and they start to like make out and stuff like that and it is pointed out uh to us the audience by somebody else that uh, we're not showering, we're not brushing our teeth, <laughs> this is disgusting, why would you do this? Um, but then it's also pointed out by someone else that like, when one of these, what's called a showmance, when one of these showmances happens, because it does happen from time to time, uh, if you have one person, if you have one person's vote, you have the other person's vote, which means e- each of them essentially has two votes. And he said like, you're not allowed two votes on this show. So like it puts a big target Hmm. on your back. And, and he says like the fact that these two aren't thinking about that shows that they're just not their Their head is not in the game. And it's just something that uh, tends to happen with younger people on the show. And, you know, it, it is, uh, it has yielded some really great marriages. Uh, Rob and Amber. Are they still going strong? Yeah. See, they've been married for a while. We're all, you know, wringing our hands over Brangelina, but love still exists. Sure. Love's not dead. Yeah. Robin Amber are out there proving it. And I believe there's... Uh, all I day, believe, every day. I believe there's uh, two people from season 15 who got together and, and got married, uh, but they're not as high profile. Because um, they didn't win. Because they didn't win. So, uh, okay. So, yeah. Uh, it, was a, it was an interesting episode, and this season is really shaping up to be pretty good, just because... The last few seasons, almost invariably, there's somebody who, you know, there are people that I'm rooting against, but they're not bad people, you know, as, t- as will sometimes happen on these types of shows, just the strain just gets to people and a real ugliness comes out that is not 
pleasant to watch. Uh, it hasn't happened with this season yet, but also just given who these people are, I don't see that happening with any, with anybody. So it should be a, just a generally pleasant season, but one that is often quite funny and one that is, uh, just generally enjoyable. All right. The other, um, sitcom that's back. This one I am very excited about. Uh, only one episode has aired so far. Uh, the last man on earth is back for its third season. Um, and this, uh, uh, this premiere was, was, was dynamite. It was not, it was pretty much a episode long follow up on the season two finale cliffhanger. Um, I get the impression that, that the status quo of the show is going to, to change, um, quite a bit. Um, yeah, that's another thing to compare to modern family is it's a show that has resisted the changes that its own characters, you know, Every time a character is supposed to go off to college, they keep finding reasons to keep them at home because right. it's resisting change. Last Man Earth is the opposite of that. It's you know it's it's moved halfway across the country. Uh, it's it it's always seems willing at any point to to just pick up its uh, pick up stakes and um, become a different kind of show in some ways. Uh, and so it seems like that might be where it's going with this. But um, we'll 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 see where it goes. Mostly, it just follows through on that premise and also follows through on. Um, January Jones's character, who is becoming maybe I don't know if my favorite, maybe the most interesting character on the show to mm-hmm. me, and I think this is um, I've been saying this since season one. Actually, if you uh, go over and listen to the um, uh, the late Hey Watch This uh, or Defunct. the On Hiatus uh, Hey Watch This, yeah, um, I've been saying that this is the best work of january jones's career hmm. um what she's doing on last minute earth and and this uh episode only continued it uh but it also introduced uh, it reintroduced a character we had met last season in one episode uh played by mark boone jr um nice and he got uh yeah not, not an actor you think of as a comedic actor if you know who he is but um had some of the biggest uh laugh lines mm-hmm. just by being a general creepy weirdo on the show um uh, so he was terrific. And then it also introduced a character for the first time, uh, played by Kenneth Choi. Uh, he was, uh, again, he's a guy you would know if you watched more TV, but, okay. uh, recently is best known for playing judge Lance Ito on the people versus oh, the okay. Simpson. Uh, but he also, you would recognize him if you saw him because he was, uh, in the Wolf of wall street in, you know, the, the main core of the, uh, guys of the one Asian okay. guy. Yeah. That's, that's, that's Kenneth Choi. Um, he's terrific. Uh, and then I will, well, I won't spoil this, but there is a very brief, but very satisfying and clever cameo in the, um, in the season three premiere. Um, uh, yeah. Um, a person, uh, shows up long enough for you to go, Hey, it's that guy. And it's funny that they used that guy and then yeah. go, Ooh, because he's not on the show anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, which is something they did at the beginning of season two, actually, with um, uh, Will Ferrell being in essentially hmm. half a scene before having a heart attack and dying and Uh-oh. not being on the show anymore. This is a very, this is actually, now that I think about it, I hadn't thought about it at the time, this is very similar to that, to uh, a major star showing up um, for essentially two lines of dialogue. Uh, and then he's not on the show anymore. That's pretty funny. Um, I will tell you off mic who it is. Okay, please do. That that will make it even funnier to you. Uh, Speaking of off mic, we should get off mic pretty soon. You got uh, one more show? I do. Is it South Park? No. Oh, okay. Although, now that you mention it, I should have watched uh, (laughs) last night's episode. No, it's... uh, Okay, so... I feel kind of bad about this. 
I was looking for something to have on while I was working. So I headed on over to Netflix and I threw on Family Guy, which I have not watched that's in a very long time. Yeah, that's an interesting uh, choice. It is an interesting, more, more than anything, it's like, okay, I'm going to give this an episode. Okay. Because I haven't seen it in a while and I'm interested to know how, what it, what it's like these days. Cause so I went with like the most recent episode on, uh, the most recent uh, season on Netflix. And, uh, you know, as much as we have as much maligned as family guy is, and it deserves to be in many, in, in many cases, I do forget that it's still funny sometimes like yeah, genuinely yeah. funny. Yeah. It generally has a few jokes per episode that hit. Yeah. Um, I do also find it a remarkably depressing show. Um, because it's, it's the dysfunction of the Simpsons, but without any of the heart or Mm -hmm. hope. Um, so like the, the, the primary marriage between, uh, Peter and Lois. And when you see just how thoughtless Peter is and how selfish he is and that sort of thing. Um, and that he's never going to get any better. Like I recognize that this is not the type of show that you watch to see people grow, but it's still like, Oh, this is really depressing. Cause I'm sure there are people like that out there. But at the same time, there's, there's one, there's an episode where Liam Neeson guest stars as himself. And, uh, there comes a moment when, uh, he's talking with Peter and he's basically playing Liam Neeson as though he were actually the character from taken. So he's like really tough and very quiet and extremely Irish. And, uh, there comes a moment when he makes reference to something as they do on, uh-huh. on family guy. And he says, and I don't remember what it is, but he makes reference to like an old time Irish battle or something like uh-huh. that. And, uh, and in the cutaway, you see this guy like in the midst of a battlefield and he gets shot in the throat and he like falls and, and bleeds out and dies. There's nothing particularly funny about it. Uh-huh. And it cuts back and Peter says, you know, when we do those, they're usually supposed to be funny. And then, and then, and then Liam Neeson goes, I'm not your clown. <laughs> and it's so like moments like that are pretty funny, yeah, but, funny. uh, you know, it's for the most part, it's exactly how I remember it. And so I, I watched a few episodes while I was, uh, working, but I'll be honest as, as was the case years ago before you and I like, didn't really like it anymore. I could only watch a few in a row before I started getting ex exceedingly depressed yeah um and so i'm gonna have to move away from it it's back to youtube for me all right